This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Welcome to the program, everyone. Uh, I'm J.V. Johnson, your host. Thanks for being here tonight. We've got a, a double guest night for you, one in each hour. In the first hour of the program, we'll be talking about ghosts and paranormal investigating with Mark Kies. Mark is a parapsychologist and director of the Pennsylvania Paranormal Association. And he'll talk about how his criminal investigation background, He was a he's a retired uh, Pennsylvania state trooper, how that skill helps him with his paranormal investigations. And then in the second hour of the program, Cindy Massey will be here to talk about her out-of-body experience, her near-death experience, which has resulted in a lifetime as a dimension traveler. She has prophetic dreams, and she'll talk about how we can all evolve past our five senses. That's tonight's program. Some great stuff coming up I want to make sure you know about, too. Tomorrow night is the best of on Beyond. No, tomorrow night is uh, Thursday. No, not a best of tomorrow night. That would be Friday. Tomorrow night we have J.C. Nova with us. We'll be talking about the 50th anniversary of the Sharon Tate murder. Of course, Sharon Tate, wife of Roman Polanski, pregnant with their child, was brutally murdered along with a couple of her house guests by the Charles Manson family 50 years ago. That'll be tomorrow night's program. Friday, a best of. And then Monday, John Hook will be here to talk about another true crime. We have back-to-back true crime discussions and he wrote a book called Who Killed Bob Crane, which will take a look at the 1978 murder of the Hogan's Hero star. It's still not necessarily unsolved because many people think it's solved. It was just no one was ever to be uh, able to be convicted of it. But it's a fascinating and very, very intriguing story. It's the epitome of sex, lies, and videotape. That'll be John Hook Monday night. And then Tuesday next week, one of our favorite guests jeff belanger you know him if you know anything about the paranormal community you've heard his name he's an author and a folklorist he's also a podcast host he'll be talking about new england legends and lore he's done a lot of work uh, uh researching legends throughout new england and that's what his podcast is about so a lot of great stuff coming up and um we have yeah we have a phone call already all right, let's go to the phone lines here. We've got, it says anonymous caller, but it's somebody that I'm going to know. Uh, welcome, caller. You're on Beyond Reality Radio. Hi, J- JV. Can, can you hear me? Yeah, I can. Is this Faki? Wow. Um, great to hear from you. It's been a really, really long time. Yeah, uh, I'm sorry I've been away so long, but I've been really, really, really busy. And um, well, now I'm, I'm here because I know that you need me to take Jason's place. Well, uh, Faki, I you know we haven't heard from you in a year or so, um, and I don't really need you to take Jason's place. Jason's not gone forever. He's just he's out filming, so he's just temporarily away from uh, away from the show. But he'll be back. Well, I've I've been practicing and I've been working really hard on taking Jason's place because I know that he's not on the show. Well, like I said, he's just temporarily gone. He's going to be back to the show um, probably in a month or so after he's done filming his new show. I mean, a TV show called uh, Ghost Nation, which actually debuts in October. Uh, so I don't. Th- I think your your call's a little bit misplaced, but it's always good to hear from no, you. No, but, but listen, listen. That's, uh, let me show you how I can do it. It's Tuesday on the east. It's Thursday in the west, and Monday in the rest of the place. Well, that was close, and I'm not going to say it wasn't impressive, Faki. But uh, like I said, Jason's coming back, so you don't have to worry about it. Um, any anything else you wanted to chat about? Well, I I thought it was really good. Well, like I said, it was it was a good effort, and we appreciate you thinking of us and and wanting to step in and help. Your your contributions are always welcome. Well, I'll just wait for your call then. Mic drop. Faki, saying mic drop isn't the same thing as an actual mic drop. I you know that, right? Faki. 
<laughs> okay, I guess I guess he's done. Uh, we haven't heard from Faki in forever. It's been at least a year. Maybe I, I think it's been more like a year and a half. He used to be a regular caller to the show. Uh, it was always fun. Always fun to have on the program. Anyway, if you're still listening, Faki, sorry we couldn't accommodate you. Appreciate your, your uh, enthusiasm for it. But like I said, Jason will be back to the show. Did you know that online retailers like Amazon have constant deals that can save you money on the things you buy every day? It's no joke. Save 40%, 50%, even 80% on great products. And all you have to do is know about them. Noodle Shark is the way to be alerted when something good is coming your way. Noodle Shark is the social media page that lists great deals that not only save you money, but give you the deals before anyone else has them. All you have to do is find Noodle Shark on Facebook. Search it as The Noodle Shark. That's The Noodle Shark. Because you deserve to save too. Become a Shark and save. Tonight we're talking to two separate guests. In the second hour of the show, we'll have Cindy Keys on. Cindy will be talking about her near-death out-of-body experience and then her prophetic dreams and how we can all evolve past our five senses. But in the first hour of the show tonight, we've got Mark Kies. Mark is a parapsychologist, and he's director of the Pennsylvania Paranormal Association. He's also a retired state investigator for the Pennsylvania, I believe it was the Pennsylvania State Police. Is that right, Mark? Hey, JB, that is correct. 25-year veteran. Well, welcome to the program. Uh, thank you for your service as an officer. We certainly appreciate that. Now, you and I met recently at an event in um, Penhurst, Pennsylvania. Well, Penhurst Asylum, which is in Pennsylvania. All I remember is we were both sweating a lot that weekend. Boy, I tell you what, I think <laughs> it was uh, a little ambient air temperature of around 109 degrees. Yes, and add some humidity into that, it was a good time. It was. So um, as, a, as a retired investigator and a paranormal investigator, one of those two uh, came first into your life. Which of the two came first? Well, I think the interest in paranormal investigating came first, but I, I started with the state police uh, long before I got into paranormal investigating. And really, uh, my, my uh, interest in the paranormal grew out of pure curiosity. I, I considered myself what I, I often refer to as an optimistic skeptic. I really wanted to believe that uh, psychic ability was real and that hauntings were possible, but I'm not a psychic and I didn't live in a haunted home. So I really had to refer on what I saw on television or read in books or heard other people speak about. And something just wasn't doing it for me. So I, I literally had to go out there and implant myself in, into those haunted locations and, and work with psychic mediums to make a decision for myself. You um, call yourself, how did you put it again? A skeptic believer. How did you put that? An optimistic skeptic. Optimistic skeptic. Now, um, I know that I know a lot of people who use the word skeptic and how they describe themselves. Um, skepticism, I've always believed, is healthy, particularly when it comes to paranormal investigating, because it's too easy to assume something's paranormal. Um, and if you don't have that skepticism, you may be leading yourself to false conclusions. Oh, absolutely. In fact, uh, the way we designed our team, we actually put skeptics on just to balance this out. We also work with uh, a few uh, extremely credible and uh, uh, very highly developed uh, psychic mediums. So we wanted to have a balance, so we put skeptics on. I found that they often come up with the very best reasons why things may happen. So when they look at uh, you know something that occurs or that we're able to document, uh, they give us some, some reasons sometimes of what they think might be going on. So we could look into that and either validate that and rule out the paranormal or or maybe they have no idea how that's uh, occurring, and it, it just adds a little more uh, uh, balance, I guess, or uh, not balance, but a little more heavier weighted towards the paranormal side. At what point did you start doing active paranormal investigations? Uh, I actually started uh, studying and, and working a little bit with psychic mediums. Uh, boy, that was back in about 2004, I believe, and uh, that, that just... Uh, grew my curiosity towards hauntings, and eventually I got into that in uh, 2005, I believe. Uh, my wife and I joined a local team uh, in 2005, 2006, and part of 2007 until we sort of broke away from them, created our own team. We wanted to go more from an uh, investigative team to uh, an investigative team, but also a resolution team. I wanted to see if I could bring in resources that could actually identify the cause of a haunting, and then stop it. 
a resolution team. Tell me what that means. So a resolution team basically uh, has the, the skills to uh, be able to go in, and, and usually that is working with a, a very good psychic medium. Uh, in our case, uh, we work with a woman named Virginia Rose Centrillo. Uh, she's been working as a medium um, as a profession for over 40 years, and she's uh, done a lot to develop herself throughout the years. She's still to this day doing things to develop herself even further. And we work with her to try to identify uh, who may be causing the haunting, uh, why the haunting started in the first place, and why the particular type of activity is occurring with each particular uh, uh, witness or victim or however they look at themselves. So once we could uh, identify some of that stuff, then we could work at resolving the case. So we're looking to, uh, again, use the psychic medium to uh, clear any any buildings or homes of uh, a ghost or an entity. Is, a re- is a, an acceptable, uh, acceptable resolution just getting the information about what is causing the haunting versus, um, I'm, I suppose, some people actually may look to have a haunting cleared or removed from a home? Yeah, it's kind of funny. Uh, I have a, a background in psychology. So one of the things that I, I really wanted to do was kind of take a psychological look at hauntings as well. And, uh, you know, I noticed uh, historically just throughout the years that uh, some people really are terrified and just very minor things will scare the life out of them and they want to burn their house down and move out of there as quick as possible. And other people have quite active homes and uh, the the activity is a lot more severe and they can't get enough of it. They just want to, you know, continue right. you know, having more and more experiences. Uh, so um, it, it's it's kind of interesting the dynamic that you find when you're working with a lot of people. But um Really, we kind of leave it up to our clients what they're comfortable with. Sometimes just identifying what the cause is of the activity or who might be there is enough to settle them down. Uh, just as an example, uh, a lot of times we've had clients think they may have something as severe as a demon in the house, and coming in and, and historically working through the case and working with their psychic medium, uh, we find out that there's a child in the home, and they're interpreting it as something dark because maybe they're seeing dark shadows or being touched, something like that. And once they discover it's a little child, quite often they say, well, we don't want to you know, push the child out of here. We're, we're okay if that's what it is. So we kind of leave it up to the clients uh, of what they're comfortable with. Um, basically, the rule our, our team kind of has, uh, and this is more on the, the spiritual side with our mediums, if it's a, a uh, an entity or you know, a ghost that they believe is a stuck soul and they need to cross over to you know, progress and develop as a soul, they prefer to try to remove them, put them into the light, you know, push them into heaven, whatever you want to call it. And uh, we work with them to try to, uh, you know, help that goal any way that we can, working with the the family and, and our medium. What is it, and what at what point, because we've seen this as well, why do we automatically, or many people automatically assume that just because an entity may appear in a dark form, that it's somehow a demon or demonic or evil in some fashion? Because uh, my experience has been that's really, there's no real correlation. Yeah, you know, and that's interesting. I think a lot of that comes from, um, you know, their, their beliefs and watching TV and movies. People are sort of programmed to, uh, you know, fear the worst in any kind of situation that they start having paranormal uh, events occur. And uh, it's it's really kind of a hurdle that we need to get over sometimes. But uh, one thing with working with mediums for so long, uh, even them, uh, the, the mediums will perceive a ghost in, in different ways on different days. Uh, using Virginia as an example, some days she might see a person standing in front of her uh, as a solid person, just like you or I. Other times she's seeing a person in her mind's eye. Some other times she might see a translucent figure or an outline of a figure. Uh, Other times it might be the shadow-like figure, which, you know, people would call a shadow figure. And uh, personally, I believe that a lot of different factors go into how a person perceives a ghost. Um, I'm not even sure 100% that people are are seeing ghosts with their eyes because one person could be standing next to someone else and see a ghost where somebody else is looking at them like they're crazy. But... Um, it, it's a, 
a phenomenon itself where uh, the perception, I think, a little bit has to do with the perceiver, the living person, and that could have a little bit to do with, you know, their health that day, how much sleep they got, what they ate, you know, where the moon is, planetary cycles, where the, you know, the solar system is in the universe. All these factors come together. And then I think you have to look at it from the spirit side as well. Uh, there might be certain days where they energetically could appear more solid or, or humanly looking than on other days, and sometimes they appear as a person. Other times it could be the shadow, shadow-like figure. So uh, it, it's one of the things that we try to tell clients before we get out there to actually investigate is, you know, try to calm yourself down and don't fear the worst until we figure out what exactly is there because, uh, you know, this dark shadow figure looking over the side of the crib at your baby could be, you know, somebody's grandma who's there just loves kids. We have a, just a little less than a minute before we have to go to our break here. Um, what do you tell somebody, a client, if you will, that contacts you, contacts you and is just uh, afraid, fearing for their life in some cases because there's something going on in their home? Yeah, those, uh, I mean, we try to get the people as fast as we can. Um, sometimes we could get them within a couple of weeks. Other times it might be months, depending on how many cases we have backed up. But um, we try to calm them down a little bit and, work, you know, request that they start uh, documenting events and looking at events uh, objectively. So uh, we want to make sure that uh, they're, they're not lumping everything together into one big ball of haunt, you know, haunted. Right. Um, you know, and that that's something that the, the mind tends to do as well, is somebody has a, a profound event, and then every little thing after it becomes the ghost in it, and we right. call that the ghost effect. So we, we try to calm them down and give them a little bit of, uh, you know, resources of what they can do before we get there. Mark, how do you take your skills as an investigator for the state police and apply them to the paranormal community, especially during a course of an investigation? You know, it was such an easy transition, uh, taking my skills from a criminal investigation into uh, a paranormal investigation. And one of the things that I wanted to do when I first got involved in this was to uh, take a look at a haunting just like a crime scene. And I was noticing some similarities of what people were reporting, uh, such as intruders and things going missing and assaults. And uh, there were a lot of... uh, uh, similarities, like I said, between the two, and I wanted to go a little bit beyond just finding evidence of a haunting, uh, much like a criminal investigation. I wanted the evidence of a haunting, but I also wanted evidence of a suspect, too. I wanted to know who was doing the haunting and why they were there, what was their motive for staying behind. So uh, the way we set up our investigations is to go in and start with interviews and talk to the family or business owner, witnesses, and uh, look at the credibility of them, see if their stories are matching. And then we wanted to do a physical investigation. Uh, we do what we call a comprehensive investigation. Investigation. So we're also using the assistance of a psychic medium on top of um, a more forensic type of investigation. Uh, but we're taking in data from all different directions and seeing what correlates and is it pointing to a particular person. And we also document very heavily um, everything we do on cases, uh, you know, from the time we arrive, uh, setting up a, a command center and uh, documenting, you know, anytime someone's out of the command center, where they are at all times, and uh, keeping uh, very controlled um, investigation periods. So we have a lot of control devices out. On a typical house, we're probably running about 14 audio recorders and we even place them outside of buildings just because there's a lot of ambient sounds that we don't hear inside, but the recorders pick up. So we want to make sure that we're ruling out uh, things from outside as well. So we put in all these controls uh, that we try to do and, uh, you know, look at a lot of video and audio footage and uh, compare that again with witness statements and what they're going through. Historically, we have a historical researcher to try to bring in information that might back up what evidence we get or what information our psychic medium gets and put it all together to try to point to a suspect. And, um, you know, it's, it's been a, a great formula the way we run that. Uh, and, again, it's just following a, an investigation procedure that right. I've used for 25 years. And, uh, you know, we've been very successful doing that now for about 15 years with our team. 
Um, I want to ask you about psychics. There's a lot of controversy about using psychics in paranormal investigations. Some teams swear by them. Some teams think that you can't get an objective um, uh, view of what's happening. But that kind of also applies to police work. Some police investigations will use psychics, and some police yeah. invest- police departments will say, we don't want a psychic or anybody like that near our investigation because it's not scientific. What are your thoughts on using psychics in both of those uh categories obviously you use them for paranormal investigations but uh give us your opinion on both of those yeah i've actually used them for both criminal investigations and for paranormal investigations and you have to look at it as another resource uh, another avenue for information to come in and then you have to objectively look at that information just like you objectively look at uh, any physical documentation you get or witness statements and try to correlate the information um you know, one thing that I'll comment on is not, you know, not all psychics are at the same level either. Uh, some people may say I'm a psychic medium, and and they have the ability to tell maybe if an energy came in a room or feel if it's male or female, and that's sort of where it ends, where other mediums will get first and last names and, you know, maybe how the person died, their occupation, you know, they can describe what they look like, and get all these um, validating uh, pieces of information to point to a particular person. And that's the, the type of mediums that we work with. We want very highly developed mediums. And, again, all we do is look at that information that's coming in and see if it matches the client's uh, statements, to see if it matches any physical evidence, historical research. If the, the family or the clients can't validate names that uh, our mediums are coming up with, we have a research department that goes out and tries to put those names at the property somehow or put the connection in there. And, um, you know, more times than not, uh, that that information that we're getting through the medium is is validated, and that's quite often first and last names that we're getting. So, uh, the way I, I kind of look at it as well, you could only go so far with the technical investigation. Uh, not all methods of clearing houses work. So, uh, I've been there where we haven't worked with the medium, and at the end of the night, when we've had no physical evidence, um, you're, you're kind of left wondering: is the place haunted or not? At least working with a very credible medium who gives other information, um, that's, that's something you could give the clients. And then if they take that step uh, to do a resolution and they're able to clear the house, uh, then I could objectively then go back and, and speak with the clients. I usually do it three days later, uh, after an investigation, two weeks after that, and then about a month later, checking back with the clients to see if the work that the medium did actually impacted the haunting. Did it stop? Did it reduce the activity, or is it the same? So uh, every little thing, including mediums, has to be looked at objectively, in my opinion. Now, you've worked on some television shows, some paranormal shows. Tell us what you've worked on. Um, Back in 2009, um, my team was featured on a show called The Haunted, which aired on All Places Animal Planet, and that was the last place I expected a paranormal show would fall, but... It highlighted how animals were also very severely targeted by paranormal activity. And we had a lot of cases that the uh, the production crew noticed that uh, had animal involvement. Plus, we also had, uh, at the time, a trained police canine that we used to take on our cases. So they, they were interested in highlighting that as well, how they were responsive to activity. So that show uh, ran, um, I think it was three seasons, 2009 through eleven. And uh, was finally done after that. But uh, more recently, I've been featured on a show on the Travel Channel called Haunted Hospitals and another one, Paranormal 911. Both just launched um, the beginning of this year. And uh, they're going into season two now. And if I could throw out uh, a little uh, plug, I guess, for Paranormal 911, uh, if there are first responders out there, fire, police, uh, paramedics, Anybody who responds to emergency calls uh, that has an experience, they're actually looking for a few more um, cases for Season 2. And uh, they could contact, uh, well, either myself through uh, my Facebook page, Mark Allen Kyes, and I could hook you up with uh, one of the producers, or you could contact Global uh, or Bristol Global Media uh, at their website and, uh, you know, pitch your, your story to them, and they might use it on air. Just so nobody's fooled like I was, 
your last name is pronounced Kyes, but it's spelled K-E-Y-E-S. Some people would think that would be Keys, but you pronounce it Kyes. It is pronounced Kyes. I went through college's Keys just because it was easier, but everybody goes right to Keys when you see my name. Right. Um, yeah, it's K-E-Y-E-S. Um, I have some fun with uh, kids. I used to lecture uh, a lot in middle schools as a, a trooper. And uh, the teachers would usually introduce me as Marquis, so we'd have some fun with the kids and say, take the K off, what do you have? You have eyes. Right. Put it back, what do you have? <laughs> so somewhere along the line, I don't know how my family got uh, keys or Kai's out of keys, but it looks just like keys. All right, so, you know, you've worked with a lot of homeowners, you've worked with a lot of people, and one of the most notorious hauntings ever is the Amityville haunting. And a lot of people automatically assume that was a hoax or a fraud because the family that moved into that home after the Lutz family left the home said they had had not had any activity. And the family that's there now, I don't know if there's been one or two since, um, two or three since the Lutz family was in there. I know at least two, but they say no activity. How can it be that a house will uh, show activity for a family and when that family leaves, the activity ceases? Yeah, it, it's something that's interesting as well, and that's, uh, again, with my, my background in psychology. I wanted to look at the interconnectedness between uh, living people and dead people and, and see why particular people experience different activity at the same location. And when a family leaves, perhaps those spirits, it, it could be an attachment to somebody in particular. So if they leave, that spirit may follow them no matter where they go. But uh, we've had a lot of cases where uh, we've talked to families who've lived in homes prior uh, to a new family moving in who reported either none or very, very minor activity and uh, said they really had anything going on. A new family moved in, and they felt like they were being targeted, and uh, the, the activity seemed very aggressive, seemed aggressive towards them, and uh, they were scared. So uh, after you know several cases of, of hearing people say that, and uh, the prior family's not really reporting much, I wanted to look into that a little bit, and I, I've come to believe that uh, the living actually are, are at least partly responsible for the type of activity that uh, is going on there. And again, this, I had to, you know, rely a little bit on our psychic mediums. Um, Virginia, again, is, is extremely accurate with her information, and she's been accurate for so many years. I, I really have come to rely on her for giving me very good information. So, you know, through the information that she was getting, uh, you might, as an example, uh, we had a very... Um, spiritual, religious uh, man that was living in a home. And the family that had lived there, very nice people, they went to church, um, no problems between them at all. They sell the house and the new family moves in, and there's a lot of drug abuse, alcohol abuse, uh, there's physical abuse going on there, a lot of very loud parties, and this was directly against this, this, this man's um, you know, upbringing and beliefs and religion, and he was acting out very aggressively to these new people. He didn't realize, um, you know, came into his home. He didn't know who they were. So there was a, a point of friction there between the two, and that activity was a lot more aggressive than the family that was very similar to his own beliefs. And, and we find that in a lot of cases. So uh, that's one of the things, uh, again, sort of counseling people, we work with trying to help them understand what may have triggered particular types of activity when they feel more targeted. Uh, some people may not even realize that they're doing it or that it's possible to, uh, we'll say, irritate somebody on the other side. But, um, you know, one, one thing that we often find, too, are uh, older people who die, and maybe they weren't the nicest people in the world, kind of, you know, crusty, a little agitated very easily, and uh, people might move in with a lot of kids and a lot of animals, and it's very loud. And we find a little bit more aggressive uh, activity in those cases where they might be irritating a spirit on the other side who's used to a very nice, calm location. So uh, it, it's a really interesting mix when you, you look at the entanglement of energies that go on between uh, the living and the dead at a place. But, um, you know, that's, I think, part of why one family could experience something completely different 
then another or somebody moves out and the activity seems to stop. Well, circling this back around to the Amityville case, um, we had Christopher Lutz on this program. He's the son or the stepson of George Lutz. He lived in the house as a child when all those reports of activity were occurring. And he had said sub- subsequently that his stepfather, George Lutz, was um, into uh, satanic rituals and the occult. And um, and that was what triggered the activity. And when he left, the activity left as well. So I guess we'll never know there. We've only got a couple minutes left, Mark. Um, I want to ask you about your book. You've uh, got a book out called The Upper Darby Poltergeist. Tell us about the book. Yeah, this was based on uh, just one of the most physically active cases that I've been involved in. Uh, Upper Darby is a, a community just outside of Philadelphia. You can see the Philadelphia skyline from uh, the street that we turned down and uh, the family was reporting such a, such extreme activity that I honestly thought they were exaggerating and, and didn't believe everything that they were saying. So part of me really wanted to go down and try to debunk a lot of this stuff or at least find causes for it. They might have been misinterpreting some things, but we wanted to find the causes for it. Or if it was true, uh, we really wanted to document what was going on and they were reporting things that, that were normal, like doors opening and closing, lights coming on and off, uh, sounds of footsteps, weird smells, seeing shadow figures. But the activity was a little more extreme uh, with they were claiming quarters were being thrown all over the house every day, uh, all times of the day. Uh, very heavy dining room chairs were put up on uh, the dining room table quite often. They said several times a week they'd come down in the morning and find the chairs on top of the dining room table. Sometimes they had items placed on top of the chairs. And in my mind, if somebody said, well, the chairs were just pulled out or knocked over, you know, I, I could buy that. But this was very precise uh, placement of very heavy chairs with things then on top of the chairs. So I started to wonder if maybe they're exaggerating there a little bit. But uh, the thing that kind of put me over the edge is they had uh, um, a newborn that was in a bassinet in the master bedroom. And after the kids went to school... Uh, Mom says to Dad, would you run upstairs and check on the baby? He goes up there and yells back down, hey, where do you have her? And she says, in the bassinet. Well, the baby's not in the bassinet, so of course they panic. Do a whole search of the second floor, can't find the baby. Uh, Search the whole house, decide to do another search of the second floor, and found the baby uh, placed underneath a, uh, a blanket in the son's bedroom, which would have been one bedroom down. And, uh... The baby was covered head to toe, and this is a baby just just a couple months old. Mm. So, again, I'm thinking, wow, I'm I'm not quite buying that. So we decided to go down, and I tell you what, from our very first visit, we started experiencing exactly what they were talking about. We were seeing shadow figures, quarters being thrown all over the house, toys turning on, uh, doors opening and shutting by themselves. So this was just an extreme, extreme case, but... It was also one of our uh, more relentless cases to solve. Uh, it dealt with um, an attachment to somebody through Santeria. Uh, there was some Santeria done on one of the, the family members, and it had to do with ghosts in the house and, uh, um, of course, poltergeist activity. So it was all these things sort of combined in one, and it took us about two years uh, three different investigations, additional visit by a whole team of our mediums. Mark, does the... And uh, a lot does, of work with the family. Yeah, does the book outline your investigations, and also does it include a history about the the haunting itself? It does, yes. Good. This is not uh, from the viewpoint of the family itself. It mm-hmm. talks about the, the background of the haunting, and it gives uh, people a look at what we experienced as a team going in to investigate and basically backing up uh, nearly everything the family was saying. All right. Uh, we're out of time, Mark. Hey, thanks so much for being with us tonight. Uh, great conversation. Enjoyed it very much. Hope to have you back on the show soon. Yeah, it was great to be here and uh, you know, look forward to listening to your next guest. Very excited about that. All right. And again, uh, Mark uh, also has a website, the PPA for Pennsylvania Paranormal Association dot net. In the second hour of our program, we've got Cindy Massey joining us in just a few minutes. Cindy's a dimension traveler as a result of a childhood near-death experience. She's going to talk about that experience, plus the resulting prophetic dreams that she has, and how we can all actually evolve past 
our five senses. She's got a book out called Evolve, A Near-Death Experience from Chaos to Clarity. Take a quick look at who we've got coming up on the program. Some really great shows ahead of us. Tomorrow night, JC Nova will be here. She's a returning guest. She's going to be talking about the Tate murders, Sharon Tate murder by the Charles Manson family. It's the 50th anniversary of those murders tomorrow night. And that's what we'll be talking about with JC. Friday's a best of Monday night show. John Hook, reporter and author of a book called Who Killed Bob Crane, will be here to talk about that as of yet unsolved, or at least many people think it's solved. They just couldn't convict the man they believe did it of the murder of Bob Crane, of course, from Hogan's Heroes fame. And then Tuesday night next week, Jeff Belanger will be here to talk about New England legends, paranormal legends, cryptid legends throughout New England. Jeff does a podcast about the topic, and we'll chat about it with him on Tuesday night's program. Um, Stop by our Facebook page and, and give it a like, Beyond Reality Radio on Facebook. Also, my Facebook page is JV Johnson, or you can search it by typing in JVJ Paranormal. And then on YouTube, it's just JV Johnson. Find it there because you will find a stream of the show, plus an archive of programs. There's well over 300 programs there now, plus some bonus material as well. Give it a subscribe. Click the notification icon so you get notified when we stream live or we upload new material. Our guest for the second hour of the program is Cindy Massey. She's an educator who, for the last 10 years, has lived in six different countries. When she was three years old, she had a near-death experience that changed her life forever. As a result, she's traveled dimensions, had, had prophetic dreams, and spoken with entities that radiated golden light. Cindy, welcome to Beyond Reality Radio. It's a pleasure to have you on the show tonight. And I'm excited to be here. I really am. So this all started for you, from how I understand it, with a near-death experience, an out-of-body experience. Tell us what happened. Actually, I was about three years old uh, when it happened, and um, I thought it was a dream. I really did. And then, um, but it was a dream that was different than all the other dreams that I had had since, right? And so, um, because I saw, you know, buildings that sang, I talked to entities that emanated golden light, um, and and I I saw a whole different dimension. It was very different from here because when I came back, I could see the that it wasn't the same at all, and I couldn't forget it either. I couldn't forget what I was told. I couldn't forget what I was, what I saw. And when I told my mother about it, because we talked about it um, at that point, but remember I was only three uh, and maybe four by the time I told her. And she said to me, she said, you told me about this. And she said, I really was afraid you were going to die. I said, really? And she said, yeah, she always had that fear with me, but she didn't have it with my two brothers. And so when we finally, you know, when I finally was in my 40s, we were having lunch one day and she told me, uh, she said, I've had this, you know, this fear all my life that you would die before me because of what you saw, because I knew that what you saw was, you know, like a little bit different than what other people see. I said it was. And it wasn't until I talked with Dr. Uh, Melvin Morris that he said, uh, Cindy, that wasn't a dream. That was a near death experience. And it was classic, he said. So that's how I found out it was a near-death experience. I didn't know up until then. I just thought it was a dream that was different than the other dreams I had. I really did. So uh, you use the language near-death experience. Um, also sounds like an out-of-body experience or a combination of the two. Yes. Was, were you yes. in any physical s- stress or trauma yes. at the time? Yeah, I was in crisis. What, uh, see, when I was born, I was born asthmatic. So every breath that I took was um, was a labor. It, it really was. I, I, every breath I took was like, is there going to be a next one? Because it was so hard to breathe through all of the phlegm. I was in the wrong place. Uh, I needed to be in some place like Arizona, yeah, uh, someplace dry, you know. And and I wasn't. I was in San Francisco, very damp, wet, foggy, you know. And so it didn't help. And so um, when I was uh, breathing, I was breathing. I remember I was in my crib. I was breathing in and out. And then all of a sudden the air stopped. 
And then I found myself looking down at my body, thinking, wow, that's really small. <laughs> that's what I was thinking. <laughs> because, because when you're in your body, you don't think about, well, at least I didn't, uh, how small you are, right? But when you're looking up or when you're looking down and you're up in, in, uh, near the ceiling, it's a totally different perspective. And I also noticed, noted, and my mother uh, explained this to me, when I went to the window, I've kind of floated over to the window and I looked out and the dirt was black. And I didn't understand that because all the dirt I'd ever seen was brown, but this was black. I was actually seeing the tar. It was a tar roof that I was looking at, but I didn't know that until years later. It also says something about the fact that you were three years old and you remember all of this so vividly. Most people at three years old don't remember much of anything, no. let alone, right. let alone yeah. a dream. Because you remember this kind of gives an indication it was something different. Yeah, that's what uh, Melvin Morris said. He said he had spoken, you know, because he was one of the leading researchers in uh, child near-death experiences when he was a physician in Seattle, Washington. And he said to me, yours is very specific and very detailed. He said, I don't usually get that with near-death death experiences, and experiences and children. And I said, oh, no, this is like branded. You know how like they brand cattle? <laughs> well, yeah. that's what it felt. It was branded into me. It's like, you're not going to forget any of this. And, and, I, and I really haven't um, because the, of the messages that were, were given to me. And and I and I that's why it stays with me. So it, it has stayed with me so long because it's been a long time. But it was um, very very impacting, and it was highly emotional in some ways. Um, because for many children, when they have a near death experience, especially if they're zero to five years old, um, it's very different for them than an adult. Like say, for example, if you were to have a near death experience, you would have a different perspective because. You have lived some years before you had it, but three years old, you don't, you haven't been around on the planet too long. Right. So you don't have a lot, you know, uh, to compare to. So it's, it's very different for them than for adults or even teens. It, it is. We've had a lot of folks on the program that have experienced near death experiences or out of body experiences. And very often that mm -hmm. uh, experience, that occurrence changes something in the way that they can interact with the other, whether I'll call them dimensions or spirit, spirit right. realm or whatever it happens to be. And you're no exception to that. Yeah, it's, it's like, um, I'll, I'll give you a quick example. Uh, my son had uh, recently changed jobs and I happened to go there uh, to the U.S. to visit the family. And so he said, oh, mom, he said, listen, why don't you come and see the new office? Uh, they'd been in it a couple months. I said, oh, okay. So we go in, and, and the minute I walked through that door, I knew instantly it wasn't real. And I said that, this isn't real. He's looking at me like, what? No, no, it's not real. He said, what do you mean? I said, it doesn't, it's not real. This isn't a real office. And he didn't understand what I was trying to tell him. What happened was that there was like a, a filmy kind of overlay over everything. They showed me the, his his office, the uh, front desk, the the little lunchroom kind of thing, and the boss's office and all of that. And the whole time they were telling me, you know, what they were going to do with it and what was going to happen. And I said, none of it's real. And they just stood there looking at me. So sorry, none of it's real. I kept mumbling that. And and so um, it wasn't until a year later that, that I found out why it wasn't real. Um, I happened to tell my son, listen, I'm going to get you a Father's Day present. Where do you want me to send it? He said, why don't you send it to the house? Well, don't you want me to send it to the office? No. Why not? And he was quiet for a minute. He said, we, we don't have that office. You don't have the office. Do you have a job? <laughs> and he said, yeah, I got a job. Okay, it's not in that office, though. No, no, I'm actually working in Factoria, another office. Well, what happened to that office? He said it closed two weeks after you left. What? 
And, and that's why it wasn't real. Because it, it, it didn't have any longevity. I mean, most offices don't close down two weeks after right. you get there, right? And so I said, you never said anything. And he was very quiet. <laughs> you know? And I said, you didn't want to tell me. <laughs> and he said, no. So, yeah, because he's kind of always kind of thought mom was kind of different. You know, she doesn't act like the other moms. He told me that one time. You're not like the other moms. Mm. But I will tell you something. When he was two years old and we were um, rolling out tortillas because he liked to make tortillas, um, he said to me, uh, he said, I think you're the bestest mom. And I said to him, well, honey, I'm the only mom you have. Oh, no, he said, I, I have other moms. You've had other moms before me? Yes. And he commenced to tell me about a woman who had uh, long black hair. She was taller than me, maybe a little heavier. And that was his mom. He remembered her. He doesn't know. He didn't know her name. But he said, you're the bestest. I like you the best. And by the time he was eight, he had no recollection of that conversation. He he doesn't remember anything about it. Interesting, huh? Very interesting. Now, do you, in retrospect, think he was recalling a past life, or was he recalling? Yeah. Was he having talking about a spirit interaction? No, he, this no. I think he was talking about a past life because he was telling me about about things they would do and and. Um, he, he couldn't tell me like the country or, or, or the language or anything like that, but he remembers her. And, um, he, he was not an adopted child. And so he wouldn't have had another mom. And then I got him. Right. You no, know, he was always just with me. So, um, yeah, he told me she wore her hair in a long braid. The, and it went down her back. And that's another phenomenon that we hear about frequently is that uh, young children can recall some of these details and then somehow mm-hmm. it, it it escapes them over time. Yeah, they're gone. And they have no memory of anything like that. Um, and so, and he has no reason to lie because we were just simply having a conversation. And then when I, I, I happened to I write it down in his baby book and then I, and then I looked at it and I said, I wonder if he remembered. And by then he was eight, maybe eight and a half years old. No memory. He has no memory of any of it. I want to ask about your mom, no. a mom again, because your mother, because of your experiences, was afraid that you were going to die prematurely. Um, did she yeah. ever explain why that gave her that feeling? Did she have some type of sensitivities as well uh, that connected her I, to the other side? I think that she did, but she was very afraid. Um, uh, and. And uh, Dr. Morris told me that uh, if someone in the family is like someone like me, it runs through the family, he said. It's not like there's this one person dropped into the family. He said other people in the family will have similar experiences. And he was right. My aunt, um, and we had been uh, talking on the telephone for years. Um, She said to me, I almost drowned. Um, when I was in my early 20s, and she said, and I had gone down for the third time. And so um, as she as she was going down, she looked up and the light was already starting, the bright white light, you know? Right. And it was starting to flow through the water. And then, and then she felt a hand grab her, and it was somebody who had seen her in a distance and and saw that she went down for the third time and she didn't come back up. So he went out to get her. And I think that, uh, my mother actually took me to a priest and I could see colors around people. Uh, and, uh, the priest was very afraid of me. I remember that. And the only way that I could kind of like uh, get around it was that I went into what I call amnesia. I don't remember anything. I don't remember, you know, ever telling anybody anything. I just said, oh, no, this, this, th- these two are, no, they, they're not ready for this information. So I just said, no, I, I don't want to talk about it. Cindy, how is your life different or how is life different for you than other people? And is it directly related to the experience you had at three years old? 
Oh, yes, it, it really is. Because um, how how you when you when you're able to cross dimensions and I don't know when that happens. In other words, I don't wake up and go, well, today I'm going to cross a dimension because that's not how it happens. Generally, what happens is you find yourself in the middle of it before you realize you're in the middle of it. <laughs> right? Right. And then you're looking around going, yeah, this is kind of different. Um, there was uh, when I was in junior high school, I can remember um, there was a boy in the schoolyard that I didn't know very well. Uh, but he uh, he and I got into a conversation. There was kind of a small group of us. And he said, um, I'm going to go. um do some cave exploring. I was living in San Diego at the time. Um, and, and I got a really bad feeling when he said that all the hair on my body stood up and I got really cold and it was a sunny, warm day, but I got very cold and I said, Oh no, don't go there. And he goes, no, it's going to be fun. And I'm, you know, I'll report back to you what I find and blah, 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 blah. Well, prior to that, uh, about a month, I think to a month and a half, the school was made of brick, okay? And it wasn't old brick. It was fairly new brick. And I noted that um, when I leaned against the wall, it was wet and it was cold. And it was, uh, it, it was uh, like in uh, near June, okay? So it was, it was kind of summery. And, and, and I could actually see rivulets of water uh, flowing from the brick, and I used to stand there and look at this, and I thought to myself, I wonder if anybody else sees this but me. So I would ask my friends, do, uh, do the walls look funny to you? And they go, no, they just look regular. No, they're, uh, they're crying, I said. They're crying. The walls are crying. And they would just kind of look at me like, what? And um, I had a boyfriend at the time, and, and, I, and I was very upset about the walls crying. And, and I told him, I said, I don't know what, what's wrong, but something's wrong, really wrong, because the walls are crying. And he didn't understand it either, because he, he didn't see the walls crying. Uh, I saw that boy on Friday. By Monday, the whole school was crying. He was killed in a, in a cave accident. Oh, wow. And, 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 and the school wasn't that big, so it really hit the students really hard. The walls stopped crying. Now the students were crying, and I'll never forget that. It was like I've never seen walls cry like that on on a sunny day. Yeah, that's but not that's what happened. That's not something that you can forget. <laughs> Let me ask you about these this dimensional travel. You said you can't do it voluntarily. You don't know when it's going to happen. Does it no. all? Does it always happen in a in a dreamlike state? Are you sleeping when it happens, or no, can it happen at any time? No. It can happen at any time. When I saw my son's um, um, office, I was wide awake and walking around. I wasn't sleeping. Um, when I had this dream about, uh, or when I had this vision about the boy, I don't know if it was, it was a feeling. It was more of a feeling than a vision. Uh, I, I was totally awake. When I saw the walls crying, I, I have my hands on the wall. People are, have left for the day, you know, and I, and I was waiting, I think for a ride or something. And I had my hands on the wall and I kept feeling the wall and the water. And I was totally awake. At one time when I was younger, I would have it in a dream formation, in a dream state, but no, it can happen anytime. And I noticed that the environment changes. Um, when I saw that boy, um, it began to shimmer. It was like, um, you know, uh, when when um, uh, pavement gets really hot, yep. it's it like that. That's the closest thing that I can uh, equate it to is that. And I call it the shimmering. And it's like energy waves, very, very fine energy waves. And that starts the dimensional shift. I can I can feel it coming when I see those waves. I know it. And and then. It, I, I shift into something else, and I see differently than the the 3D that we normally see just walking around, you know? It's different. Cindy, what do you remember from your conversation and your interaction with the quote-unquote entities that radiated golden light? Um, first of all, I didn't know his name. 
I just knew it was he or him. Um, and he had to be, because I, when I was talking to my publisher about this, he says, well, well, how big were these people? I said, well, I was three and I only came up to their kneecaps. I said, I'm, I'm positive of it. Um, I said, um, cause he's, he's pretty tall. And I said, what size shoe do you take? And he says, I take about a 13. Oh, they were easy. 25, 25 shoe. Uh, actually it was a sandal. I said, so, so you figure that in order to ha- have that size foot and be proportional, you'd have to be pretty tall. He says, yeah. I said, well, that's how tall they were. They were very, very tall. And uh, he had uh, beautiful eyes. And he had a mother. I didn't know her name either. Um, but uh, Melvin Morris said that you've ex- uh, you have uh, described uh, the virgin mother. And, and see, none of those words were used. It wasn't, it, I didn't learn any of this until I went to Catholic school, which was when I was about eight. So prior to that, I didn't have, have any of that information. And my mother uh, told me, she says, well, may, maybe it's because you saw the statues on your grandmother's, um, you know, up on her dresser. And I thought about that, but I was born legally blind. So I didn't see very much. Because because they didn't know I was legally blind. They had no idea. They just thought I was kind of clumsy. Wow. That's what they, you know, because I, I wasn't very well coordinated because I didn't see that well. Um, and it wasn't until I went to school and they um, were teaching me uh, to read the Dick and Jane series. And I was always holding the book to, uh, practically on my nose because then it was clear for me to see the words. If it was too far away, like at normal reading length from your eyes i couldn't see enough i couldn't see the words so i don't think it was the statues it was actually when i went to school and and i was taught that these people are known as da 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 da, and then i go oh oh that oh that's their name but they didn't have a name the place didn't have a name either did Other they, than the place with the thinking buildings. Did they give you guidance or a message or yeah. a, a code yes. to live by or something? Yes. Um, you have to understand, usually when a child has a near-death experience, uh, water is usually involved. Not always, but usually. Drowning, something like that. Mine wasn't that way, but what happened was that I had uh, I was drowning in the phlegm of the uh, asthma. And so when I got out of my body and I left through the tunnel and all that stuff, one of the things that I remember very clearly, uh, because I said I wanted to come, uh, to co- I wanted to come home now. I uh, he said, uh, "What what would you like?" And I said, "I, I want to come home. I I don't want to stay anymore. I I figured I'd seen enough. Three years old. We're done. We're out of here. It's not that great. So it's time to go home." And they said, and I was told, you can't come home yet. Why? Because you're not finished. And at that moment, I knew I had signed some kind of contract or agreed to a contract that I was going to do something, okay, accomplish something that was important. But if you were to ask me, I, I couldn't tell you, okay? And, um, and they also said uh, the words that I remember so clearly was, um, okay, I grieve for what they do to you, and I grieve for the way they treat each other. And and I could feel it. See, one of the things that happens when you go into that type of dimension is that it's not talking. Like you and I are talking with our mouth, but that's not talking like that. It's all telepathic. And not only is it telepathic, but all the feeling that that person has that is attached to those words, you feel it. So there is no lying. You can't lie. Because it, it wouldn't match your thoughts that you are, are giving to that person or that they're giving to you. So it's a very different kind of communication, very different than here. Now, your book and is... So that, yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, that's. I just was going to say that's what happened. So one of the things I noticed very clearly is is that Communication here and communication there is really different, really different. The book is called Evolve, A Near-Death Experience. And then it says, From Chaos 
to clarity. What's the mm-hmm. what is what is that referencing that transi- transition from chaos to clarity? I think that that most of us uh, live day to day trying to survive in a world that is not uh, exactly conducive to uh, clarity. To really see that we're more than one, uh, uh, a three-dimensional entity living in a three-dimensional environment because we're more than that but we don't know that you know um, we're not told that um, we want to be sure that our children are able to you know have a job uh, have family um, have certain things put in place but if you noted they're always physical and we don't encourage people to go on beyond the physical. And so that means you're going to stay in the third dimension. When you go into other dimensions, they're not physical like this one. They're different. A lot different. They're vibrationally very different. So that's why I said from chaos to clarity. Because it's very confining that at least that's how I see it. And it's very um, heavy, much heavier than other places or dimensions that I have been. And, and it's, and I can see why people would be concerned about this type of thing, because um, one experience I had, I was walking down the street and I had walked down the street many times, but this time was different. There was a, a store missing. And that, at that store, I was going to turn left. The store wasn't there. I must have walked five to seven blocks beyond where that store was. And I got on the same side of the street to be sure I wouldn't miss that store. And I created something with my thoughts about finding the guy who was supposed to help me get the gas bottle. Because in Ecuador, we use gas bottles. And, and I was so focused on that. But I was looking to make that turn. The next day, I was so concerned about it. The next day... I walked from my house to that store that wasn't there. And guess what? It was there. Mm. Yeah. So, so it's not, the other dimensions are not like this dimension necessarily at all. They're very different. And I think that there, some people are given messages to help them, to help them to understand what, what they're living in especially in times of crisis, there's something inside of a human human being that triggers, I think, a request. I'm having problems. I'm having trouble. There's something going on and I don't understand it or I'm worried or I'm whatever. Okay. And, and I believe if we're open to it, it triggers something and help is sent. I believe that in my heart. That's what I think. Do you have a message for humanity from your experiences? Yes. Yes. I think that um, we have to be careful about becoming so rooted in the physical that we forget that there are other sides and other dimensions to us. Not just me. I'm just one person. I'm talking about all of humanity. And if we began to really um, focus on uh, caring about and loving, loving each other more, I think that would change the planet. I know that sounds silly. But I do. Hmm. I believe it would change the planet. Yeah. Yeah. Are you afraid of dying after the experience you had? Does no. death, do no. you, you don't, you don't fear death anymore or or maybe you never did. I know, Well, I was too young to really fear death. I was only three. If you would have said to me, are you afraid of death? I probably would just look at you and go, what is he talking about? Uh, but what happens from what I, my experience and the reading I have done is that people who've had near-death experience, uh, children as well as adults, adults, most of them, if not all of them, will will uh, have a 50% reduction, if not 100%. I don't have a fear of death. Because for me, death isn't like, like uh, the end and death isn't uh, something you fear. It's like going to another city. So, so maybe I'm in Ecuador, but now I'm going to go visit you. Okay. So I just go visit you, whether it's a plane or a train or whatever. Okay. I just don't use the train or the plane. I just go. It's different. So I don't have a fear. No. 
Cindy, I can already tell that we uh, we we need a lot more time. Sadly, we don't have it tonight, but we're going to have to have you come back on the program sometime soon. Where can okay. people find your book, Evolve? It's on Amazon, and I'm in the middle of my audio. I, there's going to be an audio to it also, an audio book. I've just, I'm almost completed, and it's headed to the editors. Are you so voicing? Are you voicing that yourself? Yes. Oh, nice. Yes, I I am because it 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 had such meaning to me that, and the publisher told me they said he said to me, your readers will feel closer to you because you had that experience and it'll come through. He said when you talk about it. So I said, okay, all right, I'll do it. So yeah. So it's almost done. It's on to the way to the editors, and I'm excited. In a sentence really or two, what do you hope readers will walk away from after reading your book? Not to be afraid. Not to be afraid. Whether it's death or anything else, because I don't think people know what they have the ability to tap into. That's my message. Cindy, thank you very much. Can people follow you on social media, or do you have anything else that people yes, can use to I reference? Yes, I have a Facebook page. I have a Facebook page called Evolve. It's on Facebook. Terrific. Thanks you. Thank you so much for your time. You bet. Thanks. I think if anybody is looking for an out-of-body experience at this point, it's uh, Orion. You really would like to get out of that uh, that uh, uh, poison ivy covered sore body, wouldn't you? Yeah, the hazards of geocaching. I guess uh, it's it's getting better, but it's been a, a brutal week. Yeah, it's a na- it's nasty stuff. It's yeah. it really is nasty stuff. Anyway, thank you to both of our guests tonight, uh, Mark Kies and also Cindy Massey. We could have probably used uh, more time for both of those. So it was it was nice to uh, leave some stuff on the table for next time. Sure. Yeah. All right. Tomorrow night we've got JC Nova joining us. We're going to be talking about the 50th anniversary of the uh, Sharon Tate murders by the Charles Manson family. Can't believe that was 50 years ago. It's still a crime that has a lot of people, um, um, I don't know, I guess there's some morbid curiosity about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Charlie Manson just died. Was it this year or was it last year that he died in prison? It was not long ago. Mm-hmm. You know, he was in prison for the, the, the all of the, the 50 years, basically. Hmm. So that'll be tomorrow night's conversation. It's Beyond Reality Radio. Looking forward to a great show. See you tomorrow night. Beyond Reality Radio is hosted by Jason Hawes and J.V. Johnson and produced by Alexandria Johnson and Slick Eddie Edwards for Intercom Radio. Beyond Reality Radio is distributed by Westwood One Radio Networks. Stop by our Facebook page and say hello. Follow the hosts on Facebook as well. For Jason Hawes, follow at JasonHawes.Taps. For J.V. Johnson, follow at JVJParanormal. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Radio or you have a suggestion for a guest, contact Slick Eddie Edwards at SlickEddieEdwards at gmail.com. Be sure to visit our chat room as well at beyondrealityradio.com. Thanks for listening.